0: Welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm your host, Eric Santel, and in this episode, we're going to continue our series on the early history of the church. You may be surprised to learn in this episode that the early persecution of Christians is not what we think it is. And we'll also talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Roman army. So for this series on church history, we have been using the Anno Dominoe study by F Gathering to help structure and organize the episodes and the topics. So in this section of the study, we're focusing on the period of 64 AD to 70 AD. So at this point, Paul has completed his missionary journeys. Peter and James and the other apostles have had the Council of Jerusalem, they've had many years to um, organize and institutionalize some of the church's structures and even some of its basic core theology and beliefs and practices. So in this period of 64 AD to 70 AD, we are beginning to transition away from that generation of leadership into the next generation. And there are some cataclysmic events that play some significant roles in how the church uh, formed and developed going forward so this is from the f gathering study anno domini in the year ad 64 a devastating fire broke out in the capital city of rome tragically large parts of the city were destroyed the historian tacitus said that there were some who believed that the Roman Emperor Nero was actually the one who started the fire. Nero was believed by some to be mentally unstable. Looking for a scapegoat, the deeply unpopular Nero blamed the fire on the Christians. At this time, among the general public in Rome, there was such ill will toward Christians that these accusations took root. During the persecution of the Christians in Rome, Nero displayed his cruelty by making sport of killing Christians. One of his chosen methods was setting Christians on fire and using them as torches to illuminate his garden. So Anno Domini is invoking this tradition of viewing Nero as a persecutor of the Christians. And Anno Domini then goes on to clarify or to add that the persecution wasn't just limited to Nero. According to Tacitus, this Roman historian, Christians were seen as those who hated humanity. Why? Christians were labeled as atheists by the Romans because they refused to bow down to the pagan gods of the surrounding culture. They also refused to be involved in emperor worship and the cult that surrounded it. This meant that Christians withdrew from the public life of the Romans. Okay, so there are some important things to draw out there. You know to us it we have separation of church and state and it doesn't make sense to us quite how um, refusing to worship pagan gods or refusing to worship the emperor would constitute or lead to withdrawing from roman public life but think about times when a president or a leader has asked the country to pray you know think about the you know times maybe during World War II, when prominent leaders or even you know, Winston Churchill or FDR are asking or encouraging the whole country to pray. Now imagine that there is a, a subgroup of people who refuse to do so. <laughs> you would be very upset. What, who are you? What, what makes you think you don't need to pray for our country? Do you hate our country? Do you want our country to fail? Well, similarly, in uh, Roman culture, you have all these different gods. And if those gods are pleased with Rome, they'll bless Rome. If things are not going well for Rome, that must mean that the gods are displeased with Rome. We need to worship them, pray to them, sacrifice to them. And so there were times in the early history of the Roman Empire... um, not with nero but with actually with later emperors in like the second or third and fourth centuries rather um who said hey romans we need everyone to pray because the barbarians are invading our borders and our economy is in recession and we really need you to pray to all the gods and sacrifice to all the gods to help turn this ship around and Christians refused to do so for their religious reasons, for religious freedom. Well, predictably, local Romans didn't like that. And you had a lot of persecution of Christians, not from the emperor's down, but rather from the local population up. So it wasn't top-down, state-sanctioned persecution of Christians happening in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire. It was mostly um, bottom-up violent mobs rioting against these christians who seemed to think that they didn't need to pray for rome or sacrifice to the roman gods for rome's uh, success and therefore they must hate rome so yes there was some persecution of christians including um in a few occasions in like the third and fourth centuries an emperor declaring everyone sacrifice to the gods and if you don't you're gonna be in trouble But it wasn't necessarily enforced it was more like a don't ask don't tell policy about which gods you're sacrificing to and which you're not but there was much more widespread persecution from the bottom up from you know mobs getting mad because paul is preaching um one god and worship one god and the emperor is not god or rome uh you know paul preaching this and it's hurting the local economy of making idols out of wood and gold and silver So you have the same kind of violence, the same kind of mob rioting that Paul inspired everywhere he went, happening throughout the Roman Empire, directed at Christians uh, for their beliefs and their practices. But it wasn't coming from emperors. So when this Anno Domini study by F. Gathering starts out talking about 64 AD with the fire of Rome and Nero blaming the Christians and then executing them and persecuting them as a group for simply being Christians that is the popular portrayal of uh, the relationship between the Roman Empire and Christians in the first several centuries of Christianity before Emperor Constantine then made Christianity legal and then went a step further and made it the official empire of the Ro- official religion of the Roman Empire um, we have this popular, idea that Christians were actively persecuted by the state um, just simply for being Christian, that they were fed to the lions in the Colosseum, that they were executed in the Colosseum, burned to alive, even used as human torches in Nero's garden. That's our popular imagination of Christianity in the early Roman Empire. And often we seem to we hear people say Um, we're being persecuted as Christians for our faith. And of course, we in America are not experiencing anything remotely like what Christians experienced in Rome. But because we have this imagination of early persecution in Rome, because we understand our history in that way, it's very easy to... Look back at that and make connections. Like, well, they were being persecuted for their faith. We perceive ourselves as being persecuted for our faith, too. Um, But the reality then and now is actually much more complicated. So, let's talk a little bit about Nero. So, I wanted some more details about Nero than Anno Domini provided. So, I I went online and started trying to find some credible sources. And I found uh, a biography of Nero on britannica.com the website of Encyclopedia Britannica so his mother was nuts Um, she was literally insane and she uh, poisoned her husband Nero's father married her own uncle who happened to be Emperor Claudius and convinced Emperor Claudius to make Nero his successor so at 17 years old Nero becomes emperor brought up in this, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, brought up in this atmosphere, Nero might well have begun to behave like a monster upon his accession as emperor in 54, but in fact, behaved quite otherwise. And then this biography goes on to explain that he actually ended certain practices under Claudius. Like he ended using secret trials to deal with political rivals or enemies. He fought against corruption He gave more independence to the senate he there are uh, accounts of profound generosity and even clemency or mercy you know pardoning people for their crimes rather than punishing them for it Um, he this says his government forbade contests in the circus involving bloodshed banned capital punishment reduced taxes and accorded permission to slaves to bring civil complaints against unjust masters okay now this is fascinating this is a completely different portrait of nero than what we have in our imaginations and what we have inherited from our traditional uh, retelling of the early history of the christian church and in fact this is really interesting too Um, encyclopedia britannica adds nero saw to it that assistance was provided to cities that had suffered disaster and at the request of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, gave aid to the Jews. Right, so this guy is not a monster, at least in his early reign. So why do we have this idea, this image of him as a monster, as someone um, persecuting Christians and torturing them to death? Well, you go on in his life, and he realizes, uh, well, his partying was out of control. He, he was, without a doubt, a partier. Um, the Encyclopedia Britannica says, to the Romans, these antics seem to be scandalous breaches of civic dignity and decorum, right? And so you can imagine, you know, he's behaving just completely off the rails, completely unbecoming of a Roman nobleman, let alone emperor. And so this is scandalizing to his contemporaries and to the Roman, nobility around him um, and it doesn't make him very popular and it does make them wonder is this guy crazy is he mentally unstable and then it gets worse because he realizes you know as emperor no one tells me that i shouldn't do stuff and no one criticizes me if i'm any good or any bad at it um, so then he starts pursuing artistic pursuits like playing the lyre and writing poetry and racing chariots And you can imagine, you know, the king or emperor, who's never been told that he can't play a lick, um, insisting on holding these public concerts and expecting all the nobility to come support him, and they have to sit there and listen to him uh, torture their ears with his awful lyre playing. Um, You can see how people would not be a big fan of Nero as a person. And then we do come to the great fire of ad 64. um the great fire that ravaged rome in 64 illustrates how low nero's reputation had sunk so nero was actually 35 miles away at a villa um you know a vacation home in the country when the fire broke out so it's impossible that he caused the fire, or started the fire. But when the fire happened, he decided to take advantage of the opportunity to reconstruct the city in more of the Greek architectural style. And he also decided to build himself an enormous palace. Had that palace been finished, it would have occupied about a third of the area space of Rome. So it's easy to see how people who already didn't like him because of his scandalous behavior and his wild partying and his debauchery and his extravagance and his weird, annoying, artistic pursuits instead of running the empire. Those people who already had all these reasons to dislike him saw there's this massive fire and now this guy is reconstructing the city in a different style than it was before and building himself an enormous palace. Naturally, people are going to think there's something going on there, that he caused this fire. So he, he is so unpopular, and he's being blamed for this fire. So yes, Nero does point to the Christians and say that those, I think the Christians did it. And he scapegoats them. Um, but it wasn't because they were Christian. It was because Christians happened to already be very unpopular among the general Roman population. Um, Because, as mentioned earlier, they're refusing to worship Roman gods. So they're basically saying, yeah, we don't care if the Roman gods bless Rome or not. (laughs) We don't care if calamity befalls Rome because we're stubbornly refusing to join in worshiping them. Um, And also they refuse to worship the emperor as divine. You know, Caesar Augustus didn't just become emperor through civil war, he became emperor and then declared himself to be divinity, to be divine, to be a god. And so there's this idea that the emperor is divine, and there's this worship of the emperor. And of course, Christians refuse to do that because we worship Jesus. So they're very unpopular with the population. They're a convenient scapegoat. And there is a a record of Nero ordering that some Christians be uh dressed up in furs and then uh put to death by a pack of hungry wild dogs absolutely brutal but it's important to note that they weren't put to death for being christians they were put to death for being christian arsonists who supposedly allegedly lit this fire and burned down most of rome and so i say that because um it's more complex than the popular imagination and the popular story that we have in our minds and that we retell and reinforce. So according to um, the University of Queensland, Australia, and this essay on their website, Myth-Busting Ancient Rome, uh, according to this, yes, some Christians were executed. Some Christians were thrown to the lions. Some Christians were tortured but this idea of throwing people to wild animals to be torn apart as a form of execution that was not limited to Christians that was something that happened to lots of different people and groups depending on their crimes um, in the Roman Empire and so we have this popular idea that Christians were persecuted for being Christians um, but in reality it was actually that uh, death was not this inevitable outcome if you're a christian in the roman empire and certainly you know torture and and being thrown to the lions was not you know exclusively for christians Um, rather this brutal brutal empire had these different uh, penalties or different practices that uh, could apply to anyone depending on their crimes and Among some people who were uh, convicted, fairly or unfairly, rightly or wrongly, of treason or murder or other kinds of crimes, you might get thrown to the lions, or you might get thrown to other wild animals and and torn apart or uh, otherwise, you know, trampled and and, and killed. There were a couple periods in actually the 3rd and 4th centuries, so long after Nero, uh, where the emperor of Rome would issue a command, everybody pray for Rome, everyone sacrifice to the Roman gods, and then if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> but it was more of a don't ask, don't tell policy, according to this essay, um, Mythbusting Ancient Rome, from the University of Queensland in Australia. And so it was, in theory, yes, if you got found out that you weren't sacrificing to Roman gods, you could be in serious trouble but it wasn't something where christians were being actively pursued and actively um, persecuted for not doing it and when he died when that emperor died his son rescinded that order and restored freedom of sacrifice or to not sacrifice so we, there are a few exceptions where roman emperors issuing these commands or roman officials um, at the top of the this hierarchy and the government look to try to um you know persecute christians in one way or another but by and large persecution of christianity in ancient rome was not driven by emperors it was not a top-down thing it was not state sanctioned rather it was bottom-up so in earlier episodes of this series you know we looked at example after example after example of the Apostle Paul going into a Greek city or a city in uh, modern day Turkey and preaching the gospel, and then a mob rose up angry and tried to kill him. That's what was happening throughout the Roman Empire to Christians, because like I said earlier, you know, we would be very upset with someone for not praying to for America after our leader asked us to. Um, Or maybe we wouldn't, because you have separation of church and state as a kind of foundational value in our society. But I think, at least on an emotional, interpersonal level, we would kind of wrinkle our nose at that, or we might be a little frustrated with that. Same dynamic seems to have been occurring in ancient Rome, where ancient Romans really didn't like these Christians who thought they didn't have to pray to Roman gods, on behalf of the roman empire apparently they hate rome and they want rome to fall um and that's not very popular among us but on top of that and this comes from anno domini citizens raised charges against christians concerning their behavior there were accusations of cannibalism since christians spoke of eating the body and blood of christ there were also charges of incest since christians could be heard referring to each other as brother and sister and seen greeting one another with a holy kiss. Okay, so (laughs) Christians were viewed as the bad guys, the bad people in ancient Rome, um, because they said these crazy weird stuff about eating someone's body and drinking someone's blood, and they were calling each other brother and sister and kissing each other, and this is weird. So you can see how the persecution um, the historical record doesn't really support the idea that Nero or other emperors or the Roman Empire as a whole was persecuting Christians from the top down with the power of the government and the state. Rather, the persecution was happening you know, sporadically and spontaneously, bottom up, through violent mobs, through people um, in local communities getting mad and turning to violence. So when we have in our popular imagination, in our minds, this story of ancient Christians being persecuted for their faith, I think it influences and affects us even today. It gives us something to point to and say, well, they were persecuted for their faith. We're being persecuted for our faith, too. Okay, well, how are you being persecuted for your faith? Well, we can't pray in schools anymore, or we can't you know, display the Ten Commandments in public places, or um, you know, we just are losing cultural influence. Um, and there are a million different ways that people phrase that, but that's kind of the underlying idea behind a lot of things people say, suggesting that Christians in America today are persecuted or marginalized. To take things a step further, there have been surveys and polls done by religious research organizations like the Barna Research Group and LifeWay Research. And these polls and surveys found that the majority of white American Christians view themselves as more discriminated against than racial or ethnic minorities. There are mountains of statistics And multiple mountains worth of personal individual stories from minorities and women that disprove the assumption or belief of those people in that survey that they are more discriminated against because they're Christians than other people are discriminated against for being racial or ethnic minorities. And yet that perception exists I think, in large part, because of the stories we tell ourselves. The Anno Domini study starts off this section reinforcing this narrative, this idea of Nero persecuting and torturing and executing Christians because they're Christians. And of course, you know, persecution happened, but bottom up, not top down. Spontaneous mobs. not. Uh, state-sanctioned violence. And of course, today, Christians are persecuted in many parts of the world, but not America. Um, David French is a conservative columnist and podcaster, devout evangelical, and he uh, has devoted much of his professional life as a lawyer and a writer to advocating and defending religious freedom. I've heard him say on multiple occasions, in terms of our goals for securing religious freedom, over the last 20 years, we've accomplished every single one of them. We've won every court case expanding or securing religious freedom. And we have, um, we now have more religious freedom in 2022 as American Christians than we ever have. So that's a significant statement coming from David French. You know, he is. this is someone who's devoted his life to advocating religious freedom and pays extremely close attention to it and has the legal background to really dig into it and understand it on a legal level. And he's saying that. So the persecution that people claim, like, well, we can't pray in schools anymore, um, we can't display the Ten the Ten Commandments in public places, or people get uh, upset about nativity scenes in public places. I mean, we're talking about things that are either aspects of separation of church and state, which we have to have in order to have religious freedom. Because in countries with less separation of church and state, if those countries are say Muslim majority or if they're atheist countries like communist China and North Korea, if the official state religion is no religion, then Christians do experience a lot of persecution. Or if the state religion is Muslim, Islam, they Christians do experience persecution from the state, from the government. Why? Well, it's because of the lack of separation of church and state. So our separation of church and state enables us to have the religious freedom and freedom of expression that we have. So that's why we can't pray in schools in an official capacity. Of course, you can bow your head and pray, but we can't have a teacher or principal leading a prayer, coercing students into praying even if they don't want to. You wouldn't want uh, a Muslim teacher coercing all of of their students to kneel and pray facing Mecca five times a day. Right, And so religious freedom is essential, uh, or separation of church and state is essential to religious freedom. So a lot of the things that you hear people saying about um, being persecuted as American Christians or under attack or our values are under attack, I would argue are actually just logical results of the separation of church and state that's essential to having the religious freedom that we have and not being forced to worship a different way than we want to or to practice religion a different way than we feel we should based on our tradition or our conscience. I mean, as I record this on December 2nd, 2022, the Senate, the U.S. Senate has just voted uh, for a bill that would protect gay marriage. And this bill has several specific, explicit carve-outs or exceptions for religious institutions and organizations. So, you know, for example, you know, the uh, tax-exempt status of religious organizations, this law cannot be used to remove that tax-exempt status from a church or a faith-based organization that uh, does not affirm or does not recognize or perform Um, gay marriages, or provide services to gay couples. Like, you can continue doing that as a faith-based organization, or not doing that, and this law specifically says that it will not affect you. This law will not affect anything you're doing currently or will do in the future. Um, And that's just probably the most prominent, biggest example within that bill. It specifies several other types of exceptions and carve-outs as well that preserve freedom of religious expression, um, even if other critics might say that this is discriminating against LGBTQ people. So we have just tons of evidence um, that religious freedom is not just alive and well in America, but that it serves American Christians really well. And so when we have this narrative in our minds of Nero and other uh, Roman emperors, state-sanctioned uh, persecution, and you know, it, we, it can really distort or seems for many people to distort our perception of our status and our society and our time. Now, ironically, one other thing that Nero did do is because Nero said, I blame this fire on the Christians, let's you know, round some of them up and put them to death as Christian arsonists. Um, because he did that, this was really the first time that the Roman Empire distinguished between Christians and Jews. Up until this time period, Christianity is being viewed as a sect or a uh, denomination, if you will, within Judaism. Then, in 66 AD, the Jews in Israel and Palestine revolt against the Roman occupation. In certain parts of the Gospels, you see Jesus, or hear Jesus, warning against exactly this kind of open-armed revolt against Rome. Um, I forget the passage off the top of my head, but there's this one passage where Jesus is saying things like, woe to Capernaum, woe to this city, woe to that city. According to Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, Jesus doesn't just really dislike those cities. Um, Those cities were actually centers of the underground military resistance to the Roman occupation. You know, putting it in our context, in the Iraq war, there was Fallujah, there was Ramadi, Seder City, these particular hotspots of resistance to American forces. Um, And so in AD 66, a Jewish-led revolt breaks out. And at first, the Jews have some success. But then in AD 70, Jerusalem fell under attack by the Romans. Um, and then I believe it's that same year um, that the Jewish fortress in Masada also falls. So in AD 70, Rome basically crushes the centers of Jewish life, and that includes the temple in Jerusalem. You can't overstate the dramatic impact that had on Jews at that time. Interestingly, um, there is some archaeological evidence that a lot of the manuscripts that we found um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls actually may have originated at the temple in uh, Jerusalem and that people smuggled those documents through the sewer system, out of Jerusalem, past the Roman siege and all the way out to Qumran, um, this you know town and this set of this uh, cave system where they then stored these documents among other documents and other sacred texts in these clay jars and buried them. And then they were accidentally discovered in 1946 by a shepherd and we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this was a major turning point for Judaism, but also for Christianity. Um, Anno Domini cites the scholar Mark Knoll, who writes, "'The great turning point represented "'by the destruction of Jerusalem "'was to move Christianity outward, "'to transform it from a religion "'shaped in nearly every particular "'by its early Jewish environment "'into a, a religion advancing toward universal significance In the broader reaches of the mediterranean world and then beyond so nero introduces this distinction between christians and jews and then with the destruction of jerusalem and the temple and then christians throughout uh, palestine judea the mediterranean further kind of separate from their jewish roots because there isn't a center of jewish worship and jewish culture and thought So, let's consider what Anno Domini says. Uh, The fall of Jerusalem was a moment of distinction for the Church. In the beginning, Christianity had been viewed as a sect of Judaism. Now, there were clear and obvious differences with Christians claiming Jesus as the Anointed One, the Messiah, who is Lord. But Christianity was still seen and understood from a predominantly Jewish paradigm. Christianity was shaped in every way, as Noel says, by its early Jewish environment. But now, because of these events in Jerusalem, Christianity set itself apart all the more from Judaism. You know, so Jerusalem was the center of Judaism, but also of Christianity in a lot of ways. And, you know, much like the Vatican or Vatican City is the center of Catholicism even today. And so you can see how the um, fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple would ultimately lead to Christianity being more spread out, more diffused and for, you know, different um, cities and bishops and leaders and different spread out in different areas of the Roman Empire could become more prominent and more influential within their sphere of influence. Um, there's sometimes, and, you know, I think we'll, we'll definitely see this in later uh, episodes as we continue to explore church history, but there's the Eastern Church and the Western Church um, in early church history, and that's split or division continues today with there being a lot of differences between like eastern orthodox christianity um, or like like the greek orthodox church or russian orthodox churches versus um, the practice of christianity and western europe and america you know we all believe in jesus we all believe in the same god uh, we all you know some of the same core doctrines but there are nonetheless these major differences and significant distinctions. Well, how can that happen if you have this center in Jerusalem kind of that uh, kind of organizes and pulls together different threads and standardizes things. But with that destroyed, with that gone, we see the diffusion of Christianity, but also the growth of distinctive um, approaches to Christianity in different areas. And that, by the way, um, you know, to preview the next episode, um, opens the door to maybe some heresies. So next episode, I plan to um, dive into the next part of the Anno Domini study, uh, which focuses on the emergence of some significant heretical beliefs, um, including Gnosticism, and how the early church had to navigate that situation and come together and say well no that's heretical for these reasons this is orthodox this is what is a core doctrine or core tenet and belief of the christian faith for these reasons and so next episode we'll start to dive into what are these heresies why are they heretical and then how does the church respond to those and how does and what uh, implications can we take away from that you know, I was originally going to talk about uh, the heresies part of this um, in this episode, but I realized pretty quickly as I was preparing that, no, I'm going to want to talk about heresies more than that. Um, I don't want the heresies to be tacked on to the end of this episode. I want them to be their own episode because we're in a period that some are calling a new reformation of Christianity, at least American Christianity. We're in a period where lots and lots of people are rethinking their beliefs. They're questioning the beliefs and practices that were handed down to them by their traditions or their faith communities. And they're trying to figure out what they still believe and what they don't believe and why. Um, This is often called deconstruction or faith deconstruction. There was a particular guy um, who came up with using the word deconstruction to describe his experience of questioning his inherited beliefs and traditions and trying to reassess based on his life experience and his um, deeper engagement with bible the bible and with theology and that word described for so many people what they had experienced, or gone through, or were going through so well that it really caught on and has become a popular term for uh, that process of rethinking, reevaluating one's beliefs, of questioning and doubting and exploring and trying to figure out where you land in these different beliefs and areas and where you land ultimately in your faith as a whole. Well, how do you discern what is good theology and what is bad theology? I think that the early history of the church, where they're engaging with these heresies, or what we call heresies because the church declared them heresies, I think that history might give us some insights. In the early years of the church, they didn't have... The doctrine of the Trinity settled. They hadn't decided for sure was Jesus divine or something else, um, and so I want to caution us against uh, just just dis- declaring, "Well, those Gnostics are outright heretics, or those Arians are outright heretics." I think they are, but I think that because in those early years of the church, uh, we had some real thoughtful engagement and discussion and ended up agreeing well we don't think those ideas are really uh, supported in the scriptures and in our oral traditions and in our theological convictions about who god is as revealed by jesus Um, but i think it's important to know or to realize that it's not completely unreasonable for people in the 1st and 2nd centuries of the church to still be figuring this stuff out. You know, we had several church councils, um, the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, for example, that established and settled the doctrine of the Trinity. So between Jesus' death in 33 AD and the Council of Nicaea, like 250 something years later, There was a lot of time there where Christians are trying to wrap their heads around things like the Trinity and Jesus's divinity and personhood. I think it's going to be a really fascinating discussion or a topic with some really cool applications to our lives today as we are deconstructing or knowing people who are deconstructing. And then also, of course, trying to figure out what we reconstruct and how and why. Please uh, let me know if you have any feedback on this episode. Please re- leave reviews, tell me what you think, what questions you have, uh, things you wish I had talked about more, things you wish I had ignored or left out <laughs> because it wasn't as interesting to you. Um, and if you leave a review that you know I think needs to be right on the air, I'll be happy to do that. So thank you very much for listening and, and please rate and review the podcast.